Hello, and welcome to Polylog, a weekly dialogue on the substance and style of the Sunday morning political shows, where we take a critical look at the policymaker, the politician, and the journalist, because each is critical and each demands criticism. I'm Brendan Steidel, your co-host and communication specialist in government, technology, and healthcare. And I'm Naomi Soto, your other co-host and health policy professional based in California. Our goal for Polylog is to look at all sides of the Sunday morning political shows. We discuss guest performances, the style and quality of questions by the hosts, and the overall usefulness of roundtable discussions. Polylog is our attempt to find, praise, and demand constructive political dialogue. Today is Sunday, February 27th, 2022, and happy Sunday to everyone out there. Absolutely. Before we dive into today's show, we wanted to share a bit of some updates on our end and kind of the future for Polylog and kind of things that we've been thinking about. Most importantly, there is a future for Polylog, so don't worry, we'll begin with that. Yeah. But most immediately, on a personal note... Yes. We have another update on our family... We are expecting our second baby in the next few weeks. Yes. Believe it or not. Believe it or not. Yeah. So our daughter Mercedes is 18, almost 19 months, and we'll be expecting a baby boy sometime in the first few weeks of March. Yes. Could be as early as this week. Could be. Nope. It's going to be mid Several weeks March. from now. Mid-March. <laughs> we don't know. So we wanted to let you all know that there might be uh, some changes coming down the line. And we have thought very hard about this, and we're very excited to announce some new directions for Polylog. First and foremost, we're going to continue doing the show for as long as we can until <laughs> I give birth. <laughs> yes. Just, um, like, hey, just like Margaret Brennan, right? She yeah, was there she, right to the end. Exactly. I'm channeling Margaret Brennan every Sunday, absolutely. Yep. And then after that, we... Uh, have some actually something exciting that I'm more than ready to share for to the world. So there's been a multi-year project I've been working on that I think I began even before Polylog. I yes, it was know. absolutely before Polylog. Yes, but it, <laughs> it, it's a project that I have worked on for a very long time and that was kind of paused due to the COVID pandemic, if you're aware of that. <laughs> little event that took place and is this project is about solving uh finding solutions to the gun violence issue in our country Mm -hmm. trying to discover ways that we can reduce gun violence without passing legislation without legislation not that legislation isn't a good idea for reducing gun violence but that it hasn't really happened and it seems to keep not happening right by leaning on or assuming legislation is the only way, we don't really do anything about gun violence in this country, and we just get horrified by mass shooting after mass shooting every few weeks slash months. Yeah, in particular at the national level. There have been successes at the state level, but again, looking at this problem, trying to chip away at it from other ways beyond legislation. So it's an interesting concept, thought process, Tons and tons of research, I don't know, hundreds of studies and things I read and delved into and went into the data and analyzed and built massive spreadsheets and developed really interesting content, thoughts, ideas. So what does this mean in terms of Polylog? So what this means is I'm excited to share it on the stream during that period when we are not 
releasing regular Sunday show related episodes. But then when we come back, things will change as well. Yeah. So I guess that's update two. So while we are on family leave with our new baby, getting to know him, we will have some exciting new content specifically around this This, idea of solving gun violence without legislation. Yes. And after that, we will have a new version of Polylog, still about the intersection of politics and dialogue, but not necessarily just about the substance and style of the Sunday morning political shows. Yeah, so update three is kind of a new vision or an expansion of kind of what we've been doing. Yes, it's still going to be a critical look at the policymaker, the politician, and the journalist, because each is critical and each demands criticism. But we're going to expand beyond the Sunday morning political shows. We've covered the Sunday morning shows for how many years now? Since 2017? Yeah, so we've been covering the same four to five shows for about four and a half years. And in that time, we have looked at... Two different presidential administrations. We've looked at a presidential campaign. We have done one, no, probably two midterm elections. We have... We've done special episodes on presidential debates, special episodes on states of the union. We have looked at like major legislation that took place during President Trump's administration. Not as much during Biden's, but that's a comment for another day. And... A two-year-long pandemic, which was a surprise to us all. And now a conflict in Ukraine. Correct. Which we'll be talking about today. There is a regular show continuing. And we've covered a lot of the same hosts, but we've covered changes in hosts. We've covered lots of developments within the shows. But occasionally, Naomi and I do find ourselves saying, boy, particularly during the pandemic, it feels like we've talked about a lot of these things already. Not only just the content, but the the style right i mean we've talked about a lot of the same style points and sometimes it can feel repetitive and we feel like we're excited to look beyond at other journalistic endeavors in the political realm yeah so when we come back from family leave after this kind of series of brendan's around gun violence we're going to transition to seasons Yes. And we'll explore other political journalism. So we're talking other broadcast, you know, whether that's 60 Minutes or um, other kind of magazine type programs on TV to actual political magazines. Or the cable news shows. Cable news shows or, you know, something on in the Atlantic. And what we're really excited about in this format is that we can explore a whole moment. Yes. Right? So the backlash, the responses, the, you know, additional commentary. We've so enjoyed looking at Sunday morning so so meticulously, but sometimes we kind of lose the commentary that happened during the week. And by the next Sunday, there's like a new thing that's happening. Right. And so we're really looking forward to kind of looking at moments political moments, political journalism, moments in political journalism more holistically. Yeah, cracking that open, but also hopefully with more content for you. By doing it in seasons, it allows us a little more time to put it together and to potentially reach out, speak to the journalists, speak to other people related to the topic and the issue. So we're really excited by just kind of like expanding beyond the Sunday shows and that format to uh, to bring our special brand of 
political commentary and journalistic criticism to a new level. So I'm very excited by it. So what does that mean, though, Naomi? What do seasons mean? What, what should people expect? Can we give them a sense of that? So roughly every three months, we're going to come out with a new season exploring a different political journalism moment. And each season will have probably around six to eight episodes. Exactly. And personally, it'll also help us so that we're not recording at as the clock strikes midnight late, right late now Sunday on Sunday night. Yes. I'll just be a bit more manageable with two babies in this house. Exactly. And more time to pull together research and commentary and all that. Yeah. And that's the other thing. Sometimes we do so much research on a topic and we learn so much or we're realizing stories being framed in a really poor way and we just don't have the time to talk about it. And so in the new structure, we'll be able to kind of explore that a little bit more. Yeah. So I can't wait. I hope you can't wait. There's a lot of exciting stuff to come. So, But let's all wait for this baby. That's priority number one. Yes. And we will (laughs) wait because we have a full show ahead. Yep. So what are we talking about today, Brendan? We are talking about Ukraine. Yeah. Lots of my shows today said it was like a special episode. Oh, really? Yeah. I I don't think any of mine said special. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. I think two out of the three said it was a special episode and as we talk about ukraine today we're going to be citing a lot of outside articles and things that we looked for for resources and uh, you can find all of those links in the show notes so you can you're welcome to read all the articles yourself and we encourage you to do so because they're really eye-opening so i looked at meet the press it was a special episode state of the union which was a special episode it was like a special extended i think like non-commercial episode And you said, I think you said to me, it was like 75 minutes. Yeah, something like that. It's a lot of content. Yes. (laughs) And then I also looked at Fox News Sunday, which was hosted by Harris Faulkner. I took a look at Face the Nation, hosted by Margaret Brennan. And I looked at This Week, hosted by George Stephanopoulos. And frankly, I was very disappointed not to see Martha Raddatz reporting this week, since this is the week that Russia actually invaded Ukraine. There had been lots of buildup. Martha Raddatz had been covering it, talking about it for a while. And so her foreign policy voice was missed this week. But Naomi, first, let's do quality questionable. What stood out to you? So I had a quality panel on Meet the Press today. Quality, quality. I don't remember the last time a panel has been a quality anything in my world. And so this is a big, big deal for me. And essentially, there were four different people on the panel today on Meet the Press. There was Andrea Mitchell. She's the NBC News chief Washington correspondent. She's she's the Martha Raddatz kind of of <laughs> NBC. There was Jeremy Bash. He's the former chief of staff at the Defense Department and at the CIA. Danielle Pletka of the American Enterprise Institute and NBC News chief White House correspondent Kristen Welker. And the tension between Danielle Pletka and the journalists on the panel was very interesting, specifically Andrea Mitchell. She was not taking any of Danielle's crap today and in particular did not buy kind of her rephrasing or I don't know the cynical side of me is like straight up propaganda that Daniel Pletka sometimes spouts on the panel and made it clear that comments by former President Trump and also former 
Secretary of State Mike Pompeo were really dangerous rhetoric in terms of kind of glamorizing President Putin. Well, it's, I'm just looking at this scratching my head because I'm like, Pletka's the one that doesn't make sense there. Like, why is there yeah. a conservative voice there and no democratic think tank voice, you know, or democratic Well, I think that's voice. what Jeremy Bash is tr- supposed to be. But it's it says here he's former chief of staff at the Defense Department and at the CIA. That seems like a, an expert in, like a, a subject matter expert in these topics, not necessarily a, but maybe he was a political appointee and just did mostly political work. I don't know. Well, I mean, he was those roles under President Obama specifically, but... I think they're crossing their wires a little bit with this. Specifically, Daniel Pletka tries to make the case that even though Mike Pompeo has made comments saying what a savvy leader Putin is, that, like, he doesn't really believe it. and, And that, like, we shouldn't, like, assume he actually believes that. So we'll just play both clips back to back. Why? Remember Helsinki? I, I mean, you have to go back to Helsinki. We were there, Christian and I sitting next to each other, and it's slack jawed when former President Trump, at the time, President Trump defended Putin's take on 2016 and disagreed with his own head of national security, which led to the DNI right. contradicting well, remember, him in real time. Because I You're smirking over there, Daniel. I covered former President Trump. <laughs> he likes strongmen, remember. And so this is something that we saw consistently throughout sure. his presidency, Danny. Uh, it is. I think President, Trump, uh, President Trump's judgment on uh, Russia and on Putin has not been awesome. I think Mike Pompeo misspoke. I don't think that Mike Pompeo actually... He said it deeply, several times, Danny. I know, Andrea, but I don't think that's what he believes. Hang on. First of all, there are four of you and one of me. I'm, I'm the only Republican sitting here. Hang on a second. We're hey, not Republicans. We're Democrats. We're journalists. Oh. Oh, Let me just say about Mike Pompeo. He is so eager to get to the right of Ted Cruz and other 2024 wannabes, that to embrace Putin and align himself with Trump on that just shows that he doesn't believe it. Okay, he's a smart guy. He's a West Point guy. It's also dangerous. Then he's going to write himself out of 2024. I think that people have enough judgment to see that when someone says something like that, you can't unhear it. I can't speak for every voter, but... It's being used by Russian propaganda. If one of these people would be president today... Putin would have much more of a field day than he's even having. The NATO alliance would be fractured if Donald Trump Jeremy, were president. that is absolutely untrue. And there is a poll that it's, just it's, came out. That's, that's not, not true at all. I'm sorry. I, no, I couldn't but, but he, disagree with you more. under Trump. Pompeo has not God, Danny, you know better than that. I, I actually do know better than that, Andrew. So this is really fascinating stuff here because, you know, the American Enterprise Institute, it's a conservative think tank. Danielle Pletka... I don't, I want to say often goes on Meet the Press, but she's probably on once every six to eight weeks. And I feel like her, her commentary is just accepted at face value as like, this is what conservatives think. And Andrea Mitchell here breaks it down as to like, this is what you're saying is false. What you're saying is dangerous. And you actually know that there is like very little substance to what you're saying. And it's not something that we should just like, wait out or write out and specifically for mike pompeo it's not like he didn't have a major role in the last administration it's not like he's not trying to be a major figure in the republican party now and so the comments that he makes repeatedly about a political adversary matters right it's not just like a political candidate 
you know, speaking off the cuff. And then we're supposed to be like, ah, he didn't mean it. Like Andrea Mitchell makes it really clear, like that approach is irresponsible and does not reflect the weight of his leadership. Yeah, it's so weird. I mean, it just sounds like Pletka is trying to... It's not like she's saying, I agree with Trump and Pompeo that Putin should be praised, right? She doesn't believe that. But she's giving at least Pompeo the free pass that so many people used to give Trump by saying, oh, he's going to pivot. He doesn't really mean that. He's say, Trump's saying that for the crowd, right? He He's... He's a smart guy or he's, you know, or maybe they would say, oh, Trump doesn't really know what he's saying. He's just trying to win political points and he doesn't really believe that. She's doing the same thing with Pompeo, right? I mean, that's what it seems like she's doing. But it sounds like even Pletka knows she shouldn't really be on that panel, (laughs) right? Like she draws attention to the point that she's the only Republican pundit there. Why, Why are there pundits there? I don't know. I don't know either. And you could even find a Republican pundit who more specialized in national security. It's like that's not even the only thing she focuses on. It's just very strange. Agreed. But overall, you felt like the the panel itself was insightful. Right. I mean, I just think this is a good example of a panelist not accepting something that they're hearing and signaling to the audience that that was unacceptable, that you don't have to believe that, that. Just because someone got invited on this panel and is saying something doesn't mean it's worth taking up space in your brain. (laughs) And I don't think that happens enough. Now, how would, just to challenge you a little bit, because we talked about panels, I think it was last week or the week before, right? And some of them felt kind of cutting and personal and mean on CNN. How would you say this is different? That's a good point. I think... And I can't remember the details of the panel on State of the Union that felt cutting and mean. Like this was about what they were arguing about was the substance of what Mike Pompeo has been talking about, specifically about President Putin. And so it felt different than just saying like, you're an idiot. No, you're an idiot. Or you know what I mean? They didn't use those words, but they seemed kind of personal. Yeah. They seem like much more personal attacks on someone's judgment and they were using like really inelegant language versus Andrea Mitchell here is saying like you are being irresponsible by assuming that Mike Pompeo can say these things and not have any consequences. It's about the actions of Mike Pompeo rather than... Right. It's holding Daniel Pletka accountable for what she's saying rather than... Saying about Mike Pompeo. Right. Rather than just about Daniel Pletka specifically. Right. But that's a fair a fair pushback, I would say. Mm-hmm. Brendan, what's your quality or questionable moment? Okay, so this was something I hadn't heard, maybe other people have, but apparently the White House released the audio of Biden calling up Judge Katanji Brown Jackson and telling her that she was going to be nominated for the Supreme Court. I just found it uh, a little delightful. Take a listen to how the exchange went. This was from this week. Hello? Judge Jackson? Yes. This is Joe Biden. How are you? I am wonderful. How are you, Mr. President? Well, you're going to be more wonderful. I'd like you to go to the Supreme Court. How about that? Sir, I would be so honored. Well, I'm honored to nominate you. I, I am just so, so overwhelmed. Well, you deserve it. 
You deserve it. We are so, so grateful. Thank you, Mr. President. That's something. I don't think we've ever seen a phone call like that before. So this is, I don't know, I feel like I could just see, not that I really know Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson in any way, shape, or form whatsoever, but it's almost like, you know, we've all gotten those calls, like a callback for a job or a callback on something important, and, you know, it catches you while you're in the kitchen doing dishes or something, and you're like, oh, sure, how are you? Oh, what's going on? Absolutely. And then and then you get this news. I also liked, <laughs> it seems very just humanizing, and then I thought <laughs> the way Biden phrased it, too, I would like you to go to the Supreme Court. How about that? What do you say about that? <laughs> it's kind of an interesting way of saying it. Well, and this is the call to let her know that she's been chosen, but it yeah. almost sounds like it's the first call they've ever had. Like, <laughs> hey, it's Joe. Why don't you go over to SCOTUS? All right, cool. Thanks. We'll talk later. <laughs> I'd like you to go to the Supreme Court. How about that? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So anyway, I thought it was just a, a, a light, delightful moment. Of course, we're not going to talk much at all about this nomination because of everything else that's going on. But of course, if Ukraine wasn't going on, it would be all we were talking about, just as if neither new Ukraine nor the Supreme Court were happening, all we would be talking about are the new COVID restrictions or the changes to those COVID recommendations. And that was, I don't think, mentioned even once, even on face the nation there was no scott gottlieb which i felt was sorely missing for an important week but that is the nature of the news all right naomi well what is the main segment i mean we said we were going to talk about ukraine what's what's your kind of spin on that not to say it's spin (laughs) right what's your take yeah so not to say it's a hot take it's a considered take oh my gosh brendan you have another one in there no i was just gonna say (laughs) what's your analysis so all the shows covered this invasion into Ukraine by Russia and which is horrible and awful we should say that's true like just truly horrible and also the Ukrainian people have been so inspiring and just everything from average people standing guard to protect their city to President Zelensky and his administration staying in Kiev and hearing the stories of refugees it's just like wow just jaw to the floor inspiring yeah it kind of reminds me a little bit of what i feel like and obviously i did i didn't experience this but the the news around like apartheid and the fight against apartheid in south africa and how that all went in like the late 80s early 90s i was just a very little 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 kid little baby so I didn't actually follow the news at that time, but I got a sense that like the culture of and the world was paying attention to this to a conflict in that way. And and this kind of feels a little like what I imagine that would be like. Yeah, I mean, people are comparing this to World War Two of like people fleeing their homes and some people staying to fight and a very powerful aggressor crossing like beyond crossing a line. Yes. Right. And so those stories are so powerful. And yeah, we should just acknowledge that. In looking at the coverage today, it seemed to me like there were so many different ways to take it. And something that I've been thinking about a lot is kind of my own gap in some foreign affairs and why that can be so hard trying to understand some of these stories. 
And today I kind of came to another conclusion that like our American media ecosystem is also really bad about explaining diplomacy, foreign affairs and context of our allies, of our foes to help us understand when something is escalating or the strategies that an administration is considering, whether it's working or it's not and why it might be so. And there's been so much talk the last few months about President Biden allowing Nord Stream 2 to take place or not imposing sanctions earlier. You know, everything kind of from a very like American perspective. And it just became really clear to me that that was such a gap in the American coverage for not providing the context of what European allies wanted or were hesitant to do and how much that has played a role in what we've seen the last few weeks. Yeah, so it sounds like what you're suggesting is that your main criticism is that the American press does a bad job at explaining foreign affairs, largely because they see it solely through the lens of American actions and the American presidency. I mean, I can't explain the motivation, right? But it seems as if the approach has been to center it on American motivations or hesitations rather than kind of a global perspective as to how a major conflict is evolving and all the players and stakeholders and influence and issues, kind of like how they all impact each other. And so when something like what we're seeing in Ukraine, thinking of the sanctions to begin with, We've heard from a lot of Republicans, for instance, the last few weeks saying, why hasn't Biden imposed sanctions? And the answer is European allies weren't ready. Right. (laughs) They just weren't. And we didn't really see that so explicitly on the Sunday shows or explained as well as it could be. Yeah. Kind of what you're saying reminds me of it's almost like each of these stories can be very big, almost like an epic movie or series. But by seeing it only through the lens of a single character... And not seeing all the other characters or all the other stories that are like comprising this epic that you you kind of sometimes get bogged down in smaller issues that aren't really the driving factors that are causing the story to move forward. Yeah. And I think back of like hearing what, I don't know, Ted Cruz or Tom Cotton were saying about. He was on one of my shows today. <laughs> about these sanctions a few weeks ago. And it's like, honestly, what a waste of my time. It would have been much more useful to have learned about Germany's longstanding limited military spending or defense yeah. posture across Europe. Like, yeah. that is actually way more helpful to understanding the Ukraine situation, right? Well, now. I mean, a perfect example is that <laughs> Republican Senator Tom Cotton was on this week today. I'm not going to talk about it very much. But one of the things that he said was he kind of like refused to, quote unquote, condemn, according to George Stephanopoulos, Trump's praise of Putin. And George just kept hitting him again and again and again with trying to dig into why he wouldn't do that or, or pushing him to try to condemn President Trump. And it just went on and on and on. And it's like, okay, I appreciate the idea of holding someone accountable. But this story is much bigger than that. And why is this the only thing you're kind of digging in on when there are so many other really important issues to this story? There's a lot of airtime for that. Right. It's, it's, it's the value judgment on how they're spending their, 
time and talking about an issue that I'm really questioning. So let's dive into some examples of some of the coverage today talking about how things have changed in this escalation and changes in terms of the Western response to Russia. And you'll see even from there, even even from the coverage that is actually happening now, there's a lot of context that's missing. So this first clip that we're going to start with is from Fox News Sunday and Senator Amy Klobuchar, the Democratic senator from Minnesota, was on. Senator Klobuchar was asked by Harris Faulkner essentially what she asked President Biden to do when she came back from visiting Ukraine last month with other bipartisan senators. You've given about the power that you think that sanctions have on, I believe it was about January 16th or so, you were in Ukraine. First of all, I, I want to know what you told the president when you came back, because at that point, estimates had troops on the ground at the border, Russian invaders, numbering 100,000. The president still wasn't moving. What did you say to him when you came back? Well, first of all, um, what we, we talked to President Zelensky, and we brought his words back to President Biden. Bipartisan group, very important at the time. And what we told him was that Zelensky wanted more ammunition, more arms, particularly stingers. Uh, you saw our president, which already our government had given $650 million. You saw more arms going to Ukraine, mm -hmm. more to come. And I think really importantly, you see arms from Germany now. This is they're breaking a precedent by allowing their arms to be sent to Ukraine. This was a major ask of the Ukrainians that we conveyed to President Biden. The second was, of course, more immediate sanctions. And I think what President Biden told us, which was understandable, working with the Germans was key. And then you see some of the changes okay. with Germany's uh, positions. All right. I hear you on that. I'm going to push back. Okay. We've known that those troops were coming in since early October. We actually didn't put any of these sanctions and didn't push for the SWIFT. I know that the president can't do that unilaterally, but we're the biggest voice in the room. We spend the most money in that NATO room. And, and so he wasn't moving the needle on that. So I thought actually Harris Faulkner here gave more detail than some of the other hosts that we saw today, at least in the shows that I covered, and looking at like kind of the timing of Russian troops on the Ukrainian border and the hesitation to place any sanctions and kind of putting those two things together. But you hear Amy Klobuchar talk about Biden was essentially waiting for European allies, specifically Germany, to be willing to do this, to, to take these necessary steps. And even that response is a little vague because you're not really learning a lot. You're just learning like, OK, G Germany didn't want to do this. But like, do what? When? How? Why? You know, like it's not it's not very clear what what was behind Germany's hesitation. Right. Absolutely. Let's move over to Meet the Press, where Linda Thomas Greenfield was interviewed by Chuck Todd. She is the ambassador to the U.N. and Chuck Todd asks her why sanctions are escalating kind of day by day. Like, why haven't why weren't we this aggressive four days ago? Over the last 72 hours, we've seen almost a daily escalation in sanctions um, from the Western al Alliance, whether sometimes led by the United States. Obviously, Europeans have a lot to say about the SWIFT system. And I guess I my first question is, why has it been sort of this daily escalation? Why couldn't we have gotten all of this done? On Thursday, why has it taken till yesterday? And even that, we only have a partial removal of the Russian uh, banks from the SWIFT system. 
Chuck, you know, we made clear from the beginning that we will escalate as the Russians escalate. And that's exactly what we have done. The president, uh, in all of his announcements before, indicated that we will be prepared to put harsh sanctions on the Russians. Uh, they were aware that those sanctions were coming, and we have been consistent in applying those sanctions uh, as we've seen the escalation by the Russians in coordination, of, of course, with all of our European colleagues. But I think my frustration here is that Linda Thomas-Greenfield, literally the ambassador to the UN, literally the one of the key people who could talk about the very tricky dance of foreign diplomacy and the need for it to be very carefully executed doesn't really say anything. She just says that it had to be done in coordination with European colleagues. It's not like throwing our European allies under the bus, but you're not letting people understand why it's hard to come up with a retaliation course that Western allies can all agree to. And it's not just President Biden deciding this on his own. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, and she does say, you know, we escalate as the Russians escalate. The idea being, I guess, that, that Russia is still in Ukraine, still engaged in its effort to take over this sovereign nation. And so it might actually be a, a, a positive precedent for Europe and America to say, look, we're hitting you with this today. You don't know what you're going to get hit with tomorrow. I mean, there's more and more sanctions and more and more things that we can do. And that seems to be the case. I mean, as the day has progressed, I've seen even more about exactly which banks were targeted and different actions, including by, you know, major corporations saying they're pulling out of, of the banking system and support of the Russian economy. Right. There's a way to kind of spin this in a way that makes them makes the Western allies stronger as opposed to fractured. Right. Right. Kind of some more straight up political talk. There was a joint interview by Senator Rob Portman. He's a Republican senator from Ohio and Senator Mark Warner, also from Meet the Press. And it was interesting because you'll hear in this first clip with Senator Portman that he is kind of more of the mind, kind of like Harris Faulkner, like, why didn't Biden do this earlier? And you hear Warner kind of explain how much they were able to kind of move the European allies along to get to this point where they can do these more severe sanctions, both on the Nord Stream 2 and also the the SWIFT banking. By the way, in your conversation yeah. with the ambassador, you talked about how sanctions did not deter. That's because tough sanctions were not put in place. So we could have and should have done more. And many of us were calling for that. But we are where we are now. So we need to continue to tighten it up, including putting all Russian banks under this uh, SWIFT ban. Well, first of all, the United States response has been stronger because we've actually brought all our European and other allies along with us. Mm -hmm. um, Rob and I were in Munich last week. The Europeans were were believing, but uh, uh, and mostly in, but not fully in. But look at what, what's happened over the last few days. We've got Nord Stream 2 sanctions. Yeah. We've personally sanctioned Putin. He now joins that group of like Qaddafi and Assad of one of the few world leaders ever been personally sanctioned. We have the SWIFT actions because if we'd sanction SWIFT, that's a European organization. The fact that SWIFT is acting in concert with us, kicking Russian banks out. So I think a really important clarification here by Senator Warner talking about how it really took extra effort 
to get the European allies on board. <laughs> you can't really do swift sanctions without European allies. And so it that there were extra diplomatic efforts that were necessary to even get here. So that was a good clarification by Senator Warner. But I wanted to kind of also show an example where the host question really leaves a lot of detail missing so that the viewer never has a chance to kind of understand what they're talking about. Take a listen to how Dana Bash poses almost kind of the same situation, the same question to Senator Mitt Romney and pay particular attention to just the dearth of details in her question. The U.S. and its allies just announced new sanctions on the Russian central bank and plans to remove some banks from the international SWIFT banking system. Was that the right move? And what more, you mentioned some things, but what additional steps should the U.S. be taking? Well, keep cranking that up. As Mitch McConnell said, you can't get the sanctions too high. At the same time, recognize that for the sanctions to be most effective, you want them to be shared with our allies around the world. Uh, we want to all be together on this so we can only go as fast as everybody wants to move together. So that's, that's critical. Uh, but those sanctions will have an impact. I also uh, noted in that release from the White House that we and our allies are going to be going after the oligarchs, going after their mansions, going after their yachts. This is very good news and the kind of thing we ought to be doing. And I, I also think um, consideration of a humanitarian zone and no-fly zone uh, to allow people to escape from Kiev, if that's necessary, may be something that we need to consider as well. But let's keep on uh, cranking up the sanctions against what is a, an evil regime. So you hear Dana Bash just say the U.S. and its allies announced new sanctions. And then she asks, was this the right move? And what more should the U.S. be doing? Like, lady, you haven't even explained what it took to get here. And then you're asking the senator to say if this was enough. Right. And then what we should be doing next. Your viewer has no idea to... I mean, Mitt Romney gives some solid answers here and talks about how, you know, we can only move as quickly as our allies. But if this was another senator, <laughs> you would learn so little from this question. Well, it's so interesting you say that because one of the things, once again, that I decided not to cover today was uh, comparing and contrasting basically the same thing, kind of similar to this, being said by Senator Tom Cotton, once again, a Republican, and then Representative Liz Cheney, who's also a Republican, both of them calling for more sanctions. But Tom Cotton, like you are suggesting Romney could have done, does make it completely political and tries to drag, you know, Biden through the mud every way that he can, even if there isn't a lot of mud, he does it anyway. And, you know, I wanted to compare and contrast that with uh, Representative Cheney, who kind of like Romney here, just kind of speaks the facts and says, look, yeah, there's more we can do, but we're glad we've got what we got and we're going to keep working at it. But you won't hear those clips. You have to go to the shows to, to get those. Well, I'm not one to run to a tom cotton interview <laughs> but it's it's interesting who, I, yeah i mean who cares about tom cotton <laughs> not this household so it's just kind of really frustrating because it shouldn't be left up to chance to have the guest give you the details your questions should be robust enough that your viewer can analyze for themselves whether 
the response they're getting is genuine and is valid and is compelling or is total BS? We got a better answer than the question warranted is what I'm trying to say. So I just want to close out this segment with a quick clip from the Ukrainian ambassador to the United States, Oksana Makarova. And she was interviewed by Dana Bash. And she was asked, what more can the Western allies do to help her people and her colleagues? I know how loudly you and the president of Ukraine have been asking for help from European allies and the U.S., Uh, The U.S. and European allies are taking steps to cripple Russia's economy. Last night, uh, it started to remove certain banks from the swift global financial system. They took a big step of sanctioning Russia's central bank. And the EU just announced that it's closing its airspace to all Russian planes, including private aircraft. So knowing that that is the backdrop just of the past 12 hours, What further steps do you uh, and the Ukrainian government want the West to take to punish Vladimir Putin? Well, let me tell you first that we are very grateful to all of our friends and partners, and especially to the United States, for decisive actions, for leadership, for standing with Ukraine, not only with statements and support, uh, uh, verbal support, but with concrete and specific acts, with helping us, with equipping us and helping us with defensive weapons, but also with this uh, decisive sanctions. Because it's important to punish Russia, Mm -hmm. Russian Federation, for what they've done to us, for what they've done to us since 2014, but also for what they've done for the past four days. I mean, the war in Europe was not something anyone could imagine. And the, the, the pictures and images that you see on the TV, but something that Ukrainian men and women live in and Ukrainian children is 1941. We, we are re, reliving the, the images from the past yep. when, uh, the, when the Nazis attacked Kiev. Mm-hmm. So, so before I so let what you... we need more, ahead, we, need, we need more weapons. Yes, we need more weapons uh, and we need more sanctions. The sanctions should be elevated to, 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 to all the possible levels and Russia should be isolated until it changes the behavior really quickly. So I think this response is really important because it has all the details that we saw missing in pretty much every other response. She talks about weapons that are needed. It talks about sanctions that are needed. It talks about how overdue this, this res- these responses are. And it's really, <laughs> you could demand your political guests, the Republican and Democratic senators, to be well-versed on this topic if they're going to talk about it on your show. Of course, I think the Ukrainian ambassador is always going to be more more detailed than any kind of American guest, but there's a way to kind of elevate the conversation that I think was just really, really missing throughout most of today's shows. Um, in the show notes, I'm going to include a really great article that I read today on the New York Times about the hesitance in history of... Germany's kind of response and how there was a big backlash of from essentially them only sending helmets to now agreeing to the swift sanctions to now agreeing to increase their military spending to be two percent of their GDP agreeing to delay or scrap Nord Stream 2 to actually sending weapons to Ukraine and letting third party 
countries who have German weapons also to send weapons to Ukraine. Like, there's been a lot of changes that is crucial for Ukraine. But we haven't seen the shows really give that context as to how much diplomatic effort has been required to move certain countries along in Europe. And there's a reason Biden couldn't do everything. It's because he needed those European allies. Yeah, well, it's so interesting because how many times do we actually hear the conversation revolve around, oh, there are three great world powers, the U.S., Russia, China. And it's like, actually, the European Union, you know, is so much bigger and more powerful than is often given credit for. But there's an assumption that it's, it's because it is independent states that they, independent countries, I should say, for clarity's sake, that they are not unified and they don't move as a block and they don't work together. But ever since the UK was kind of like, peace out with Brexit, I think it's, it's freed the EU to confront crises like this one with a unified front. And they're doing that right now. And it's, it's, an, it, it's crazy. I mean, you look at the budget increase that was just announced for Germany. I mean, it's more than double their defense spending, you know, from under 50 billion to 100 billion in like the blink of an eye. That's, that's huge. That's huge. I think we shouldn't be assuming for people to understand that jump and what it means. Like we have to help them along. Exactly. So that was a lot of kind of what I thought was missing (laughs) or missing context. Brendan, what are you talking about today? Well, I'm looking at my note and it says missing context in all bold. So (laughs) and and all caps, but it's a little different. So I also found myself a little frustrated by the nowness of this story without a lot of background, without a lot of context. For the audience, an audience that isn't super familiar with all these players and all these situations, even though, yes, in the background, Russia has been amassing troops on the border and waiting for the ground to freeze over so they can ride their tanks out without it falling through the mud. All these things we we heard about for weeks and weeks and months and months, but that doesn't mean that we have a full understanding of the players involved. And my sense here was that because this story is developing so quickly, there's an easy out for these Sunday news shows to say, look, we just have to get people up to speed about what happened in the last week or what happened in the last day or the last night or whatever. And so they pour a lot of their energies into that. And they do sometimes a pretty good job of recapping what's, you know, a whole handful of developments over the recent few days but sometimes it's kind of like it's almost like i guess the analogy would be if you're in history class and you skip ahead to the chapters that you haven't read yet and you have to start studying like the dates and the names of the people in those periods of history but you don't actually know the facts yet and you don't know the actual narrative of like how those people applied to those dates and what actually happened. That's what it kind of feels like. It's almost like Jeopardy without the answers, or I should say without the questions because of the way that's put together. So I want to pull out a few moments where there were things said on the two shows that I covered that I felt 
like the audience might nod their head along to or go, oh, wow, well, that's interesting, or oh, really? But without a full understanding or even a basic understanding of the context, the audience is kind of left without, a, without an appreciation for what this actually means. So let's begin with the show this week and their introduction, which was actually a good introduction. It was, a, I think it was like an eight-minute report about what's gone on in the last week. It was pretty well produced, but again, it was all about now, 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 and not about why or what happened before. Here is one clip. This is senior foreign correspondent Ian Pannell, based in Kiev, reporting. Now, a U.S. official telling ABC News a $350 million package of lethal defensive aid will also include portable surface-to-air missiles. The last time America sent such weapons to help America's enemies was during the Soviet occupation of Afghanistan. Welcome to the new Cold War. Okay, so the U.S. is sending missiles. We've sent other things before, but it looks like we haven't done this missile thing in a while. So you might think, all right, I guess that means America's raising the stakes. And we hear correspondent Pinnell say this is like the new Cold War. And that's that's all you get, though. That's all you get. But of course, there's a lot of questions like, well, why hasn't America done that before? And didn't we know there was a threat to Ukraine? Shouldn't we have been sending it? And what's the history of all this? Well, we miss all of that. All that's gone. It's not there at all. And when we do hear some of the history, we hear it from other politicians, politicians who want to score points, politicians who want to say, oh, well, this is all Obama and Biden's fault when Obama was in charge, right? He he didn't arm the Ukrainians. Or we say, oh, well, you know, this is Trump's fault for holding the holding back the Ukrainian aid. And, you know, Trump's always cozying up to, to Putin. But what's the facts? Where are the facts here? And so I went searching, digging for the facts. There was actually a really good story in the Washington Post that I found that talked a little bit about the U.S.'s history of helping Ukraine. And here are some of those facts that I think might be eye-opening for understanding the significance of this $350 million package and those surface-to-air missiles in particular. So from the Washington Post story, I'm going to read just a little bit. Here it is. Obama became more convinced that providing high-end armaments to a far-off conflict was folly when barely a month after Poroshenko, now this is the leader of Ukraine at the time, this is in 2014, barely a month after Poroshenko's inauguration, a Malaysian airliner was shot down by a surface-to-air missile over separatist territory in eastern Ukraine, killing all 298 people aboard. Western intelligence believed the weapon had been provided to the separatists by Russia. Now, that's the separatists. That's the group in the Donbass region that is fighting against Ukraine, fueled by Russia. The article continues, If the same thing had happened with U.S.-provided weapons to Ukraine government forces, Obama said at the time, according to aides, the United States would have gotten the blame. So, what ended up happening? Obama did not send that weaponry to Ukraine. Instead, Obama sent body armor, night vision goggles, vehicles, and training, not surface-to-air missiles. Because there was this example of a surface-to-air missile that was supplied, killing 300 people aboard an airliner, right? So that's interesting and important context for 
why the U.S. hasn't done this before. I had genuinely forgotten about the down plane of the separatists. By the separatists? Yeah. yeah. And it just like goes to show like how long and how ongoing and how complicated this kind of escalation and and focus of Russia in Ukraine has been. Like, yeah. How is the average news consumer supposed to keep all these pieces together? Like, it's right. just, it's so wild. Well, and the other piece that's related to the U.S. arming Ukraine, of course, was Trump's first impeachment. Right. Right? Mm-hmm. Because Donald Trump approved the sale of weapons to Ukraine in December of 2017, but apparently... They were kept boxed in a military storage facility far from the front lines where they were to serve symbolically as a strategic deterrent to Russia. They weren't actually to be used, according to the terms of the sale, which is kind of weird. And then Trump in 2019 froze $400 million in security assistance to Ukraine. And then we heard that telephone call with who? President Zelensky, where Trump asked him to do a favor for him and dig up dirt against Biden for the election, right? With the idea that he would release this security assistance that Ukraine desperately needed to fight Russia if they helped Trump in the election. And that led to Trump's first impeachment. Which Senator Romney talked about in his interview on State of the Union. Oh, did he? Yeah. Yeah. But it's like, wow, that's also related to America helping Ukraine with weapons. And literally, that's the first time I had heard of Zelensky spoken so much in the political uh, frame so both of those interesting pieces of context to a fact that otherwise just kind of zooms by here's another example also from this week but from a conversation with the ukrainian ambassador and ukrainian ambassador markarova and in this clip george stephanopoulos is talking about a recent development that we heard just today that actually ukraine and Russia were going to meet to talk about a potential diplomatic solution to this conflict. And George is now asking what might be on the table for Ukraine to give to Russia to stop Russia from continuing to attack. Is, is, is it fair to say that is, is the president prepared to forsake any membership in NATO in return for peace? I don't think, you know, first of all, we have to understand here that neither NATO nor any other false pretest or lies that Russian Federation government is spreading is the real reason why they attacked us. They attacked us because they always wanted to destroy us, because free, democratic and sovereign Ukraine is a threat to them. We are a peaceful country. We never attack them, but they cannot allow us to be independent and just to live our own lives. That's why they attacked us in 2014. That's why for the past eight years, they've done everything to pressure us into into this. And that's why now they started the war. But again, in Ukraine, all Ukrainians, whether we speak Ukrainian or Russian, whatever nationalities we are, we are all united right now around one simple idea. We want to be independent, we want to be sovereign, we want to restore our territorial integrity, and we just want Russians to get out from our country and not kill us, I mean the Russian army. And they are demotivated. So here's Ambassador Markarova pushing back on this idea that this is all about NATO, and if Ukraine just 
promises to never join NATO, then therefore Putin is going to stop. But there is important context to this conversation that is kind of missing. Like, what does NATO membership really mean to Russia? Why does Russia care? They seem to be threatened by NATO, but why? And and what is it that, that Putin really wants? What is he against? What does he have against Ukraine? What does he want from Ukraine? Some of these things have been suggested or, or touched on a little bit, but a lot of the history was missing. So I went looking for some good context and, and facts, and I found a great New York Times article that went into it very directly. And this article noted that, quote, after the Soviet Union collapsed, NATO expanded eastward, eventually taking in most of the European nations that had been in the communist sphere, the Baltic republics of Lithuania, Latvia, and Estonia, once part of the Soviet Union, joined NATO, as did Poland, Romania, and others. As a result, NATO moved hundreds of miles closer to Moscow, directly bordering Russia. And in 2008, NATO stated that it planned someday to enroll Ukraine. So to somebody like Vladimir Putin, who was the head of the KGB under the Soviet Union, seeing all of these Soviet Union countries not only become independent from the Soviet Union, but joining NATO, an organization that was explicitly designed to counter the strengths of the Soviet Union, was very threatening, as you can understand. But I, I really appreciated this like recognition of how all these other states, like how many of them that are in NATO now were Soviet Union countries at one point. That's not like underscored enough. Absolutely, which is why it's interesting or telling of Putin's frustration that some of these former Soviet states are in NATO, but Ukraine isn't. Yeah, and there's further there's further important context to what happened in recent history where Ukraine had a president of Ukraine that was very closely allied with Putin and with Russia, but that there were really huge protests in Ukraine in 2014 that forced that president to like run back to Russia, like run away. And he was he was pushed out. And right after that, that is when Putin annexed Crimea. And that's also when Putin started this rebellion, the separatist rebellion in the Donbass region in the eastern, far eastern portion of Ukraine. So all very, very important context that, again, these idea these concepts they're touched on but the actual narrative is not there you know we, we don't get it okay let's go to face the nation and some of the facts that were there because there were interesting facts and points made but again a lot of the context was left unsaid so here is an example from face the nation where we hear david martin the military analyst talking about how successful Ukraine has been so far in resisting Russia's advances, but that that might be reason to fear Russia's future escalation. David, the reporting is that the Ukrainian resistance is putting up a fierce fight and that Russia isn't moving as quickly as they had thought they would. Well, it seems to be true. Uh, the Russians have basically bogged down. Uh, they are uh, still about 20 miles from the capital of Kyiv, 
and they are starting, starting to experience shortages of fuel, shortages of ammunition, and it's turning into a siege. And in fact, they are starting to use rockets, which are much less precise than, than missiles, using rockets to bombard the city. So uh, the fact that the Russians have bogged down may be um, good news for the defense of Ukraine, but it's bad news for the citizens of Kiev because it puts them in even um, greater danger of, of being harmed. Russia has now committed about two-thirds of those 150,000 troops that had massed around the wow. border, 100,000 troops. And it has not been able to take a single major city. But you have to look at it and say they've still got 50,000 there on the border ready to commit and lots more troops back in Mother Russia. So uh, they're, they may be suffering an embarrassment of arms, but I think most people still expect a breakthrough will come. So David Martin suggests that things could get a lot worse in Kiev, but it might be helpful to have an understanding of what that means, right? Are there other examples of things getting worse or of Russia fighting in a different way? And there actually are. There was a, another really good article in the Washington Post that I found where it talks about how Russia's acted in this war differently than they have recently in other conflicts. And the article explains, quote, so far, the Russians have acted with noticeable restraint compared with the past wars they have fought in Syria and Chechnya. They have refrained from the intense bombing and missile strikes against civilian areas that destroyed and depopulated cities such as Aleppo in 2016, that's in Syria, and Grozny in 1999, that's in Chechnya, perhaps because they believe the local population of Ukraine would welcome them. The concern now is that having suffered early setbacks, Russia will unleash the massive firepower at its disposal, raining down bombs and missiles on towns and cities to cow them into submission, Western officials say. So I think this context is important, not just in helping us see other conflicts and other places where Russia was engaged, but in understanding how this is different, how Russia is treating this differently, how Russia wants Ukraine to be part of Russia, right? They, they, they don't want Syria to be part of Russia, right? So they're going to fight differently there. But as a result, Russia's military has to act differently, and it's not working out very well for them. But that doesn't mean that Russia is going to stick to this losing playbook the entire time. Russia is fighting differently in this conflict than it has in other places. But Ukraine is, and the people of Ukraine, are clearly fighting differently than Russia expected. And I did want to highlight one moment of really good context that was provided on the Sunday shows that was also on Face the Nation, but it was with H.R. McMaster, former National Security Advisor to President Trump, retired general, and he spoke with Margaret Brennan about this difference. Important. Does that mean when Kiev falls, the United States should fund an arm and insurgency and kind of a Cold War style proxy battle? Well, I, I think the Ukrainians are, are going to fight. 
And I think what, what Putin didn't understand, this isn't an autocratic regime like his, right, where it, it's, uh, it's conducive to decapitation. The Ukrainian people are fighting for their freedom. They're fighting for democracy. They're fighting for one another and their sovereignty. And that just doesn't go away if he's able to seize Kiev. And I don't think, I don't think seizing Kiev is, is in the cards in the immediate future. The next 72 no. hours, I think, are going to be really critical. I think what you have to look at, is on the, when you look at the map, it's important to look at the scale, Margaret. You know, and, and it's, it's really easy to look good crossing the border at the beginning of an offensive. But you begin to reach the culminating point where you run out of logistics supplies and your force gets more diffuse. And then your supply lines are open to interdiction. And so, and so I, I think this multi-pronged attack that you show on the graphic, you know, it looks good on the map, on, on a chart, but it's actually quite difficult to execute. So there was some more information at the end there, but the part that really struck me was him talking about this idea of Ukraine being a democracy, not a an autocratic regime like Putin's Russia. And what that means is that a lot of times in autocratic regimes where there's one big leader, if that leader is taken out by the enemy, then that government often will fall because that's it. The whole thing is is predicated on that one person's rule. And so that one person is very important. And we've heard things about Russia designating Ukrainian President Zelensky as their number one target, Right. But they're kind of wrong about this. They assume that if they take out Zelensky, just like if Putin was taken out, the country would fall and things would change. But Ukraine is clearly more than Zelensky, right? Ukraine has fought for its freedom, has rallied for its freedom, has shown for the past at least decade that they're willing to fight. And it's not about Zelensky. Zelensky is embodying it, but Zelensky is not the reason that people are fighting. Right. This fight is with Ukraine, not with Zelensky. Zelensky just happens to be the president of Ukraine while this invasion happens. Right. And he appears, you know, by a lot of observers to be doing a pretty good job, as almost as good a job as you can in a situation like this. But it doesn't mean that taking him out will mean that Ukraine is suddenly going to bow to Russia, that that's not going to happen, clearly. And there was an interesting point, you know, he talked about autocratic regimes, and it reminded me of something I heard recently. I think it was on the Chuck Todd cast, where Chuck Todd was speaking this week with the former Supreme Allied Commander of NATO. And the point that was made was that the reason that Putin has been so afraid of getting COVID is because he's afraid of being on a ventilator, and that once he's on a ventilator someone could walk in there and that would be the end of Putin. Like he doesn't want to make himself vulnerable in that medical situation, which I had not really heard before. Yeah, I had heard something about COVID and power and mm-hmm. isolation kind of being the his you know cocktail of preference of the last two years. Yeah, but it's a good example of this autocratic versus democratic regime. So lots of interesting facts and data out there, but I would encourage you to look for that context when you can so you can see how all these little pieces kind of fit together into the broader narrative of what the heck is going on. Uh, One thing I didn't get to talk about was Zelensky and who he is. You know, a lot of these shows have talked a lot about who Putin is, but not a lot about Zelensky. 
and he's got a fascinating history, including having been an actor who played the president on TV. So it's kind of like Martin Sheen actually becoming president. Who knows? In our world, it could still happen. So, Naomi, what is our dialogue challenge this week? So we talked a lot about missing context. (laughs) Yes. And I think the burden is too high to know all of your missing gaps, right? As a... As a news consumer. Okay. But to be a little mindful of kind of something that you don't understand very well or something maybe a story that you haven't explored yet or an angle and try to engage in a conversation about it with maybe someone who does know more about it or has been following it. Or if you try to learn a little bit about it and you're still confused, kind of talking it out with somebody and getting their impression. It's so easy to like not even put your toe in the water on a story that you don't understand because it can be so overwhelming. But if you have kind of like a trusted thought partner kind of talking it out, can be a safe way to just learn a little bit more if you have any questions about something that we have been exploring or something that we're saying is missing and you know a lot more about it we'd love to hear some of that feedback you can email us at podcast at polylog.com you can find me on twitter at soto naomi underscore you can find me at beastidal and you can find the show at polylogcast and if you have any thoughts about kind of polylog future you know we're we're open to that too i mean we're absolutely kind of building it as we go and we're so excited to kind of take polylog to a new place so and uh, and our listeners obviously yeah absolutely well we'll all go there together until then we will talk with you next week talk to you then bye bye